Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It was windy and cold, about 30 degrees on the morning of February 6th, 1996 as 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey left his home in Great Falls, Montana for his walk to school, but he never made it. Now, almost 25 years later, rumors and theories still surround his disappearance, but the most common theory among law enforcement is that Zachary Ramsey met a brutal end at the hands of a cannibal. Welcome to Season 4 of Montana Murder Mysteries. I'm Blake Simonson. My co-host Angela Marshall and I are still practicing social distancing, so while you won't be hearing from her tonight, we will be switching off episodes throughout the season. Montana Murder Mysteries is brought to you by The Advocates. Your accident wasn't your fault, so don't deal with it on your own. The Advocates will handle paperwork and deal with the insurance company so you can rest and get better. Been nervous to work with an attorney? Then work with an advocate instead. The advocates are available 24-7 online at montanaadvocates.com. Ange and I are both very excited to be bringing you another season in the new year. I'm sure I speak for many of us when I say it seemed like 2020 was never going to end, but here we are. And what better way to kick off the season than with a case that we've been promising you since the beginning? This was actually the first case that I learned about when I moved to Montana nearly four years ago. My mom sent me a link to an article called 10 Reasons You Shouldn't Move to Montana. And on that list was cannibal child killers. So tonight, we delve into the still unanswered questions surrounding Montana's suspected serial killer and cannibal, Nathaniel Barjona, part one. Now, before we get into it, I do want to warn listeners that this episode contains details of crimes against children. It is not suitable for children. It's not necessarily easy to listen to even for an adult. It certainly wasn't easy to read through the court documents, and it wasn't easy to write. So now is your warning. If you aren't comfortable listening to these crimes, feel free to skip this episode in part two, and we'll see you back here in a few weeks. If you're sticking around, let's get started. Let me take you back to the year 1999, back when the average monthly rent was $645 and a gallon of gas cost a little over a dollar. This is the year the online peer-to-peer sharing device Napster was released, and President Clinton was acquitted of perjury and obstruction of justice, ending his five-week-long impeachment trial. 1999 is also the year America's heart shattered when two teenage boys went on a rampage killing 12 fellow students and one teacher at Columbine High School in Colorado. 21 others were injured. But in Montana of the same year, on December 13th, a detective with the Great Falls Police Department was driving to work when he noticed a large man walking in the area of Lincoln Elementary School in the early morning hours. A man he knew didn't live or work in the area, but he had seen the same man walking near the school several times recently. He recognized the 5 feet 8 inches tall, 250-pound man as a suspect the department had interviewed for fondling a child in the past, 
a man by the name of Nathaniel Barjona. According to court documents in my hand, Detective Burton also knew that there had been a series of incidents reported to police of a man approaching children at the school. So naturally, the detective requested an officer to go check out the situation. As an officer rolled up to Barjona in his patrol vehicle, it was still dark outside, so the officer shone a spotlight on him, but Barjona kept walking. So the officer got out and asked Barjona to come to the front of the patrol car, but Barjona just stared at him. The officer noticed Barjona had both hands in his jacket pockets and asked him to take his hands out where he could see them. Again, Barjona just stared at him. It was at this point that a second officer arrived. The second officer asked Barjona if he had anything in his pockets, to which Barjona answered, I have a stun gun. Officers decided to give him a pat down in case he had any other weapons, and court documents say they found the following. Two cans of pepper spray, one in his pants and one in his jacket, a toy revolver, a functioning stun gun, and a metal badge that said Special Investigator. It was then that they noticed what he was wearing, a blue nylon older style police jacket with a spot on it that is specifically designed for a badge. This is more than enough to raise the alarm for officers who decide to take a closer look at Barjona's past. Just five years before, in 1994, Barjona was accused of fondling an eight-year-old boy's genitals. After being Mirandized, Barjona denied doing this, but he said that if he did do it, he had blacked out. And if he had done it, he said he probably would have killed the child. But Barjona's criminal history started long before this. You see, Nathaniel Barjona wasn't born and raised here in Montana. He had actually been born David Brown in Webster, Massachusetts, which straddles the border with Connecticut. Local newspapers interviewed his childhood friends who painted a disturbing picture of Barjona long before he made his way to Big Sky Country. The Hartford Current wrote an in-depth piece digging into his background, and one of the people they interviewed said Nathaniel, or then David, was shy and didn't have very many friends when he was growing up. And the older he got, the more disturbing his behavior became. The childhood friend recounted a time Barjona, unprovoked, tried to run him over with a lawnmower and then tried to grab his throat before the friend managed to beat him away. The Hartford Current was also able to get their hands on psychiatric records, which revealed Barjona told psychiatrists that when he was seven, a Ouija board told him to strangle the neighbor's daughter, which he did. The girl survived because her mother walked in and caught Barjona in the act. Incidents like these popped up throughout his childhood and into his adult life, even being caught trying to kidnap young boys. In 1975, an eight-year-old boy by the name of Richard was walking to school in Southridge, Massachusetts. He was playing on the ice when he slipped and fell down. Probably skinned his knee up a bit, so he went back home where his dad told him he was fine, go to school. So once again, Richard started to hip his trek to school, this time by himself, when a man, later identified as Barjona, pulled up in a car and flashed a police badge. Barjona told Richard he was looking for a little boy who had run away from school. He told Richard to get into the car so he could take him to the police station. Because Richard knew his slip and fall had made him late for school, this eight-year-old kid didn't question this and got into Barjona's car and Barjona drove away. The beginning of a day Richard would later testify still haunted him into adulthood. After a short drive, Barjona pulled over, turned to Richard and admitted he was not a police officer and ordered him to get on the floor. After another short drive, Barjona told Richard to get into the back seat. Barjona then turned violent, grabbing Richard's throat and leaning on top of him. 
He stopped and made Richard take off his clothes before strangling him again. Richard pleaded for Barjona not to kill him. He took Richard out of the car and threw him on the ground, then pulled a small shovel out of the trunk. He looked at Richard and put the shovel away. Richard later recounted being forced back into the car and strangled with a seatbelt before Barjona had him put his clothes back on and told him if he ever told anyone, he would find Richard and kill him that time. Richard, bruised and terrified, walked back home. When his father saw what had been done to his kid, he immediately called the police. Richard was able to identify Barjona to the police, but Barjona claimed to have never seen the child before in his life. Later, Barjona testified that he blacked out and was frustrated because of his father's death. He said he was also mad about an argument he had recently with a used car dealer. Investigators asked him why he abducted the boy, to which Barjona tried to put the blame on the kid, and said Richard had reminded him of a mechanic who had ripped him and his mother off. Barjona, at 18, was convicted for assault and battery against Richard. He was only given one year probation for his crimes. In fact, Barjona wouldn't see any time behind bars for his crimes in his younger years until everything escalated in 1977. Two 12-year-old boys, Alan and Billy, had just finished watching a movie at the White City Shopping Center in Shrewbury, Massachusetts. They were walking through the parking lot when a man, later identified as Barjona, drove up in what looked like an unmarked police car. Alan would later describe it as having black wall tires and plain hubcaps. The driver was dressed up and clean cut. He pulled out a police badge and told them to get into the car so he would give them a ride home. Believing the man was a police officer, the boys complied and got into the front seat. They gave him directions to their homes. But right before they got to Alan's house, Barjona pulled over and stopped the car. In a turn of events, Barjona told them they were under arrest to put their heads down and their hands behind their backs. Barjona then handcuffed them both. Alan testified that when he reached for the door, Barjona pulled out a knife and told the boys not to try anything. Alan said this is the moment he knew for sure that the man was not a police officer. Something I found particularly unnerving while reading Alan's testimony is he said Barjona was calm the whole time as if he knew exactly what he was doing. With the boys handcuffed and subdued, Barjona drove them through several towns until he reached a campground in Charlton, Massachusetts, where he had already set a tent up. Alan said Barjona took him and Billy into the tent and told them they looked like they came from good families, and that if they ever wanted to see them again, they would take their clothes off. Both boys refused. Alan remembers saying if Barjona wanted them to take their clothes off, he would have to kill them first. Little did he know, that was exactly what Barjona would try to do. He took the boys back to the car and drove them to Cemetery Road, where he pulled Billy out of the car and threw him in the trunk. Alan remembers Barjona making him walk down a trail before coming up behind him, putting his arm around Alan's neck and lifting him off the ground. Barjona squeezed his arm tighter and tighter as Alan's feet dangled above the ground. In fear that he would pass out, Alan decided to take a chance. He let his body go slack, hoping Barjona would think he'd passed out or died. And it worked. Barjona let Alan's body fall to the ground. Alan dared not move his chest, holding his breath as long as he could. Alan recounted years of playing army with his friends, where they would play dead or see who could hold their breath the longest. This is what he held onto as Barjona leaned down, holding a hand in front of Alan's nose and mouth, checking to see if he was breathing. Alan remained still as Barjona stood back up, lighting a cigarette and tapping the ashes onto Alan's body. 
Barjona then began kicking Alan in the ribs and legs. Alan still refused to give off any signs of life. Barjona eventually gave up interest and walked back to the car where he grabbed Billy out of the trunk and started walking him down the trail. When they returned to the spot where Barjona had assaulted Alan, Alan was gone. As soon as Barjona had walked out of sight, Alan had taken off into the woods as quietly as he could, hands still bound behind him. When Barjona realized Alan was gone, he quickly took Billy back to the car, shoved him in the trunk again, and grabbed a flashlight, heading into the woods to chase down his escaped victim. As Barjona swept his flashlight across the dark woods, Alan laid in a depression in the ground to hide. Alan could see the road from where he laid, and as soon as Barjona got back into his car, Alan made a run for it. Alan managed to run down the road, still handcuffed, mind you, until he found a house. The homeowners called the police right away. Turns out one of the boy's mothers had already called law enforcement when she came to pick them up at the movie theater, and they weren't there. The cops picked him up, and Alan led them to where Barjona was still holding Billy. When Barjona saw the patrol cars, he took off, leading the police on a car chase. It ended with a crash. Law enforcement swooped down on Barjona's car and quickly drug him out, placing him into custody. Alan remembered watching police rescue Billy from the trunk, still handcuffed, bloody and banged up, but happy to see them. While in custody, Barjona told police he originally kidnapped the boys with the intent to hold them for ransom, but then tried to strangle them to death when he realized they could identify him. Barjona was charged and convicted on two counts of attempted murder and two counts of kidnapping. He was sentenced to 18 to 20 years for the attempted murder and 8 to 10 years for the kidnapping. However, he didn't spend much time behind bars. Following a mental health evaluation, Barjona was committed to Bridgewater, a local mental health facility where his sentence was one day to life. The state laws at the time required health officials to prove without a shadow of a doubt that the person should be kept incarcerated. Barjona petitioned a state court to be released even though two psychiatrists testified they had fantasies about dissection and cannibalism and an interest in instruments of torture while being preoccupied with murder and violent sexual fantasies. One of the psychiatrists specifically said that Barjona must be considered dangerous and was subject to further episodes which may result in murder. But as the current reports, Barjona's lawyers got psychiatrists of their own to testify on his behalf. They testified Barjona was no longer dangerous and referenced a review board hearing from the year before where a therapist said Barjona was making progress. Barjona was released from Bridgewater in 1991. It was just six weeks before he was arrested again for trying to kidnap a seven-year-old boy in front of a post office. Instead of recommitting Barjona, the current reports his mother proposed that they require him to live under her supervision in Great Falls, Montana. The judge and prosecutors agreed, and Barjona made his way to the treasure state. Fast forward again to 1999, the details of this case were especially disturbing for Great Falls investigators to uncover as they had found Barjona with a badge and a police jacket, along with pepper spray near an elementary school. They managed to charge him with one count of carrying a concealed weapon and impersonating a police officer. It was this investigation that led to the discovery of something even darker. Coming up on Nathaniel Barjona Part 2, we explore items uncovered during a search warrant for his apartment, why police think he's responsible for more than Zachary Ramsey's disappearance, and the crimes that finally kept him behind bars. Thank you for listening to Montana Murder Mysteries. If you like our show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. 
If you have a case you would like us to cover, feel free to reach out to our ABC Fox Montana Facebook page or send Ange and I an email. Montana Murder Mysteries is researched and written by myself and Angela Marshall and produced by Joe Lassar. See you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.